morning, church. It's good to be with you. My name is C.T. Eldridge, and uh, one of the pastors here, and it's an honor for me this morning to share from God's Word. And today we are beginning a new series, and it's called No One Ever Told Me. So this is a series of sermons that will seek to address some of the difficult and perhaps often overlooked truths of the Christian faith. Many of these messages that we'll look at, many of them will address tensions, truth that we have to hold in tension, and certainly that's the case for today. And so we begin, no one ever told me that God is righteous and gracious. No one ever told me that God judges and forgives. In other words, how can God be righteous and gracious? And we're going to seek to answer this question by looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. So if you have a Bible and want to look there, about three quarters of the way through, you'll find the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then after that is Romans. If you see First and Second Corinthians, you've gone too far. Turn back a book or two, and you'll find Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And we're going to be in chapter 3 mainly. But before I begin to read our scripture passage, let me set up where we are within the book of Romans, because we're jumping right into the middle of a tightly strung together argument. And if you just jump into the middle of it without understanding the context, then you can miss the force of Paul's teaching. So let's think about the two chapters leading up to where we are today. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. This passage is preceded by two of the most sobering chapters in the entire Bible. From Romans chapter 1, verse 18, until Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle lays out a full-scale and brutal indictment against the entire human race. And so he begins in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Paul goes on to explain that Gentiles, pagans, he'll also refer to them as Greeks, all those who are outside the Jewish community, even though they lacked God's written word in the Old Testament, they still have no excuses for their sin and disobedience before God. They suppress the truth, he says. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. That's the Gentile. Then in chapter 2, Paul turns to the Jew, the person whose conscience should be informed by the law of God. And in chapter 2, verse 3, he asks of the Jew, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. No. Because even those who had the light of God's law, they were still plagued by hypocrisy, idolatry, sexual immorality, and injustice of all sorts. So no one escapes. 
Whether Jew or Gentile, no one escapes this divine sentence for disobeying God. Paul says multiple times, no one has an excuse. As we'll read in a moment, all mouths will be shut upon the sentence of God's judgment against our sin. Because there is no defense for us. There are no excuses to speak of. So as I said, we'll be focusing on chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But I want to read the preceding verses to give you a sense of Paul's argument here and the sobering nature of all that he's saying. So I'll start in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, and read all the way through verse 26. But remember, we're going to focus on chapter 3, verse 21 through 26. So Romans 3, verse 9, all the way through 26. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written in the Old Testament, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruined and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show God's righteousness at the present time so that he may be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we hold on to every promise you've made. And specifically now, we hold on to the promise that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation. And so show that power now. Holy Spirit, attend the proclamation of the good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stanley Tookie Williams 
He grew up on the rough streets of South Central Los Angeles during the 1960s and 70s. Tookie, as he was fondly known. His mom was just 17 years old when he was born, and his dad abandoned the family when Tookie was still a baby. In his early teens, Tookie was the victim of bullying, so he took on a vicious demeanor and a willingness to defend himself physically. Without much leadership in his life, Tookie soon took to street fighting, disruptive behavior at school, theft, and drug abuse. In 1971, when Tookie was still in his late teens, he founded what has since become one of the largest street gangs in the history of our country. They're known still today as the Crips. Tookie's natural leadership ability and physical strength gave him a compelling voice of direction for many young African Americans growing up on the streets of L.A. And in starting the Crips, Tookie initially had good intentions. Years later, he would say, We started out, at least my intent was, to address all of the so-called neighboring gangs in the area and to put an end to it. I thought, I can cleanse the neighborhood of all these, you know, marauding gangs. But I was totally wrong. And eventually the Crips morphed into the monster we were addressing. And hundreds and thousands of young men joined this monster of a gang. And the Crips, though they provided needed community and purpose for many young men, the Crips, Tookie's gang, eventually became a massive force of brutality, rage, and lawlessness. The group was marked by thievery, violence, and the proliferation of drugs. And in 1979, several years after the beginning of the Crips, this lifestyle caught up with Tookie. He was charged and convicted on four counts of murder, each one taking place during an armed robbery attempt. And for Tookie, because of his crimes, the sentence was death. But here's where the story gets interesting. After several years in prison on death row, Tookie had a dramatic turnaround. Because of his status as a founder of the Crips, he still had a lot of influence with the thousands who remained members. And he began to use his influence to call gang members and inner city youth away from this lifestyle. One strategy he had was to write children's books and books for teenagers. In these books, Tookie encouraged young people to pursue their education and to avoid the dangers of gang life. Tookie also led in reconciliation efforts between rival gang members and gang leaders. Through letters and phone calls from prison, he arranged meetings between leaders and helped end decades-long battles of hatred and murder. And after several years of activism, Tookie's turnaround was so impressive that he was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. A Nobel Peace Prize. Past winners including Teddy Roosevelt, Martin Luther King Jr., and Mother Teresa. For his good deeds, Tookie is now thought to be in that class of person. So on a human level, I don't know if there's ever been a bigger turnaround. 
original gangster to Nobel Peace Prize nominee. That's the title of one of his biographies. But in 2005, all of the legal and bureaucratic maneuvering were up. And after 25 plus years on death row, Tookie's execution was scheduled for December 13th of that year. In response to the news of the scheduling, over 175,000 Californians petitioned Governor Schwarzenegger that Tookie be granted clemency from the death penalty. Clemency is just a legal word for forgiveness. Celebrities from the area rallied local supporters in Tookie's favor to be spared the death sentence. And legal efforts did grant his lawyers a clemency hearing with the governor. But here was Governor Schwarzenegger's conclusion to the hearing. Quote, There is no reason to disturb the judicial decisions that uphold the jury's decisions that he is guilty of these four murders and should pay with his life. The basis of his request for clemency is personal redemption he has experienced and the positive impact of the message he sends. Yet, cumulatively, the evidence demonstrating Williams is guilty of these murders is strong and compelling. There is no reason to second-guess the jury's decision of guilt or raise significant doubts or serious reservations about Williams' convictions and death sentence. And so it was carried out. So here's the question. How could the governor be righteous and gracious? How could the governor be just and uphold the law and yet excuse this man for breaking the law? And today we're asking the same question about God, the ultimate governor. How can God be just and gracious? And here is the glorious answer, a substitute. We need a substitute. We need someone to take our place, and oh friends, he has come. God's justice is satisfied. God's grace is extended through the cross of Christ. That's the big idea of this morning's sermon, you can experience God's forgiveness through the cross because on the cross, Jesus experienced God's justice. And the way this sermon is laid out is by asking the question, how do I get that experience? How can I know that God's justice against me is satisfied because I know I've done wrong? And how can I know that I'm forgiven? First direction for how we can know we have this experience. First, realize you deserve God's justice. Look again at verses 21 through 23. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this divine righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, it is for all who believe. 
There's no other way to be gifted the righteousness of God but through faith in Jesus. It is for all and it is for only those who believe because, Paul says, amongst all, there is no distinction. No distinction in the sense that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. In other other words, receiving the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus is necessary for everyone because everyone alike is guilty. There are no distinctions. For me, this is one of the most compelling and beautiful truths of Christianity. As Christianity exists within a world of religions and philosophies and thought systems, here is a truth that makes Christianity stand out from all the others. There is no distinction. From one person to the next, we are all equally guilty before God. As far as Christianity is concerned, not one person in the world fares better than any other person in the world as it regards God's righteous standards. Within every other religion and philosophy and thought system, there are distinctions. For Hinduism, there are those who are at the top of the caste system and those who are at the bottom. For Buddhism, there is the enlightened And the ignorant, the spiritually awakened, those in stupor. For white supremacists and other nationalists, there is the superior race and the inferior. The moral and the immoral, the religious and the godless, the high class, the low class, the productive and the useless. All sorts of social and racial and spiritual moral tests are used to distinguish one person from another. Yet here... Amongst all this distinguishing, all these comparisons, the Apostle Paul declares, there is no distinctions. There are no comparisons. As far as Christianity is concerned, not one person in the world fares better than any other one person before God's righteous standards. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So here's the question God has for us. Have you realized you deserve God's justice? Have you owned your idolatry? Have you owned your ingratitude? Have you owned your hurtful and deceiving words? Have you owned your adultery? Have you owned your selfishness? Paul's point here is that if we play the comparison game, we'll never realize our guilt before God. If we distinguish amongst ourselves the bad and the not so bad, the moral and the corrupt, the religious and the apathetic, if we play the comparison game, we'll never come to this realization of our guilt. There is no distinctions. God, give us the grace to realize our guilt, that we are all in Tookie Williams' shoes. The sentence of guilt is loud and clear. The evidence is compelling, and we cannot work our way out of this. This is a humbling truth to come to grips with. Who likes admitting guilt? Who likes confessing wrongdoing? It's humbling work, but, oh, friends, it is liberating. It is liberating to come to this realization because it prepares us for this next part. 
Realize you deserve God's justice and receive God's justifying grace. Look again, verses 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Despite our guilt before God, Paul says there is a way. There is a way for us to be justified before God. To be justified. This is more than merely being forgiven. John Stott was an Anglican pastor and author. He put it this way. Forgiveness is negative. The remission of a penalty or debt. Justification is positive. The provision of a righteous status. So if forgiveness is the removal of our sins, justification is the addition of this righteous status. And this righteous status includes no less than the righteousness of God himself. Remember back in verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's this righteous status we receive through justification. So it's not simply that God says, you're forgiven. All your sins are pardoned. No, he says, you're justified. It's as if you never sinned before. That's how secure we are in Christ. That's how free we are from condemnation. We are justified via the righteousness of God himself. And notice next, verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. In other words, this justification can't be paid for. This just status before God cannot be earned. It is given in grace as a gift. Is it you this morning trying to earn God's favor? Trying to perform your way into His acceptance? Trying to do enough good that you can silence your conscience? If so, surrender to this truth. A right relationship with God cannot be earned. Good deeds, religious works, your spiritual resume, it'll never be enough. It is a gift received by the broken. But back to our initial question. How does God forgive like this? How can God justify the guilty? I mean, this is great. I'm glad there's this gift of justification, but how? How can God be this forgiving if he is just? Again, we need a substitute. We need someone to take our place. And here it is. Here he comes. Again, verse 24. We are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Aha. Someone else has come on the scene. Our justification is possible because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God has done something through Jesus that makes it possible for God's judgment against us to be upheld and for His grace to us to be extended. Paul calls it the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
Well, what is the nature of this redemption? Paul explains, starting in verse 25. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To propitiate means to satisfy, to appease. And so Paul speaks of Jesus' blood as this propitiatory sacrifice, this sacrifice that satisfied the justice of God. So does God just wink at our sin? Does he just sweep our transgressions under the rug and say, oh, forget about it, like some jolly old grandpa? Heaven, no. God's justice against our sin came down in full, but not on us. God put forth a substitute, even his own son. Another commentator is helpful here. Charles Cranfield, another British man, says it this way. This is a complex but beautiful sentence. God, because in his mercy he willed to forgive sinful men, willed to forgive them righteously, that is, without in any way condoning their sin, purposed to direct against his own very self in the purpose of his Son the full weight of that righteous wrath which we deserved. Justice is served. Grace is extended through the cross of Christ. Realize you deserve God's justice. Receive God's justifying grace. Will you receive him? Listen again to Paul's emphasis, verses 21 through 22. The righteousness of God has been manifested, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Faith, belief, it's the same word in the original. Again, verse 25. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation to be received by faith. Faith is contrary to works. Faith is contrary to earning. We can't perform good works such that we earn this justification. Instead, it is humbly received as a gift through faith in Jesus. Tookie Williams did inconceivable good once he turned his life around. He did Nobel Peace Prize level good. Violence and hatred was restrained across hundreds of neighborhoods and city sections. Scores of young people were spared because of his message. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to satisfy justice for his wrongdoing. And it's the same for me and you. Receive God's justifying grace Through Jesus, our substitute. And then what is there left to do? How else is there left to end but this way? Realize you deserve God's justice, receive justifying grace, and let's rejoice in the God who is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Friends, our God is incomparably just. Don't think different for another moment. The Apostle John says God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 
Paul says elsewhere that in his letter to Titus, he refers to God as him who cannot lie. God is so thoroughly righteous that he is incapable of not telling the truth. And in the seventh psalm, David sings, God is a righteous judge. He rules the nations with truth and justice. And along with being our righteous judge, he has provided a substitute to be judged in our place. Oh, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the God who justifies the ungodly. He acquits our most heinous crimes. He forgives our secret sins, and he lets go of condemnation for all that we've ever done wrong. Will you receive this gift? Won't you rejoice at this good news? May it be so.